I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode has been sponsored by Koyuchi, C-O-Y-U-C-H-I. Koyuchi has been crafting the finest coastal-inspired organic bedding, sheets, towels, robes, and apparel, and more for a clean, environmentally conscious home since 1991. They're trying to change the way people think about buying home textiles by providing transparency, product innovation, and practices that limit harm to the environment and the people that live in it. Their transparency is being open about the supply chain, their fibers, their chemistry, and their safeties. They're really product innovators, and they're committed to organic, regenerative, and circular initiatives with the planet and the people in mind. They see themselves as disruptors in the way textiles are made and are activists for a cleaner and safer planet. And P.S., their pajamas are amazing, and they were so kind to give us five pairs of pajamas as giveaways, which we're doing on Instagram and everything else. So anyway, Kayuchi, you are the best. I love your jammies, and I'm sure everybody else will too. Thanks so much for being a sponsor. Okay, I don't know about anybody else, but it is hard being at home with all the kids and no school and life and work and everything. So I thought I would re-release this episode with Carla Nomberg called How to Stop Losing Your Shit with Your Kids. It's so funny. It's so good. And it really has specific actionable tips that I have taken when I feel like I'm about to implode. Um, It's about managing your own triggers and not letting yourself get to that point. And when you do get to that point, what you should do about it. And if there is ever a time where this book is helpful, It is now while we are all stuck at home. So enjoy it. Take Carla's tips for what they are. Try to implement a few of them and know that you are not alone um, with the lack of patience and that we will all get through this and just be kind and try to keep try to keep it together. (laughs) Enjoy the episode. I'm here today with Carla Nomberg, PhD, who's a writer, speaker, and clinical social worker, and the author of How to Stop Losing Your Shit with Your Kids, A Practical Guide to Becoming a Calmer, Happier Parent. She's also the author of two other mindfulness books. She's contributed to the New York Times, the Washington Post, HuffPost, and Mindful Magazine. She currently lives with her husband and two daughters outside of Boston. Welcome, Carla. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So I have to tell you, My daughter, who's five, no, she's six now, loves the title of your book. I think she thinks it's like the funniest thing. And she, and I told her this morning, I was interviewing you and she's like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. So (laughs) she may sneak in at some point, but you have a lot of fans. Perhaps I lose my shit with my kids too often and they think it's funny, but (laughs) just wanted you to know. (laughs) One of my friends was reading this book and her daughter, who I think is in second grade, found it and was like, when is she going to write a book called How to Stop Losing Your Shit with Your Parents? That's the one I need. Oh, that's funny. I like that. I thought that was cute. That is cute. So tell tell me how what How to Stop Losing Your Shit with Your Kids is about and what inspired you to write it. So, you know, it's it's basically what it says it is. It's a book exploring how we parents can be more patient and present and not explode at our children quite so often. And it also talks about what to do after the inevitable explosion happens because we're all gonna lose it sometimes. I mean, I wrote the freaking book and I still lose it with my kids sometimes. And and that's okay. Like that doesn't make you a bad parent. It's not a problem to be solved. It's just part of reality with kids. But if you feel like your temper is becoming sort of the predominant sort of way that you're interacting with your children or you're exploding on a you know daily basis or just more often than you're comfortable with, this book might be helpful for you. 
And the way I came about it, I don't know. I guess the topic of this book has basically been my personal and professional life's work for the past 11 years. I mean, I have two daughters. My older daughter is almost 11 and God help me if I call her 10 years old. And my younger daughter is nine and parenting is hard, man. It's really hard. And, you know, before I had the kids, I really wasn't a yeller, except maybe at my sister in high school, but that totally doesn't count. And I found myself exploding at my kids. And I was like, ooh, this is not awesome. And this was when they were little. They were so little. And I was yelling at them. And you'd think that as a clinical social worker, I would totally know how to handle this. And yet there was one night that I refer to in the book when it got so bad. I think my girls were like two and three years old that I sat down and literally started Googling, how do I stop yelling at my kids? I mean, I have a PhD in clinical social work and I couldn't figure it out. And it, and so that night sort of set me on this journey that took a few years, but I finally came up with a few ideas and practices and strategies that have been really helpful. And that's where the book came from. That's amazing. I love it. And it's such a helpful book. You start with six truths that will help you keep your shit together instead of losing it. So I just wanted to run through those and ask you about a few of them. So your six truths are one, parenting is hard. Two, every parent loses their shit sometimes. Three, contrary to what you may think, you probably haven't broken your children. Four, even so, losing your shit sucks. (laughs) Five, (laughs) it's not a matter of willpower. And six, you can learn how to lose your shit a whole lot less often. So the one I want to talk to you about first is number five, it's not a matter of willpower. Because I feel like, you know, I have four kids and sometimes I try hard not to lose it, but sometimes you just do. And I feel like, oh, if only I had tried harder. So tell me how it's not only about willpower and, and there's more to it than that. Oh yeah. Look, willpower. I I met, I met a mom once who was like, you know, I just decided to stop yelling at my kids and I stopped. And I was like, what, what? I don't, (laughs) are we speaking the same language? Like, are you a human? If I turn you around and open like the little door on your back while I push buttons and there's like little wires and back, cause I don't understand how that works because if I could have done that, I would have done that. That's what I call a coulda, what a strategy. Look, willpower is kind of like a muscle. And when we use it too much or even at all over time, it gets tired. And by the end of the day, it basically doesn't work, which is why we stand in front of the fridge trying to decide what to eat. And we end up like, you know, eating chips for dinner because we it, it even takes willpower to make a decision like, should I eat this or that? Should I get out of bed or should I hit, you know, the snooze alarm? All these little things we do during the day. Am I going to fight with my kid about the shoes or let him wear flip flops to school? Every single little thing, you know, takes willpower. And by the time we get to the end of our day, we're exhausted, we have none left. And that's often when parents are losing it with their kids. The other thing is that our willpower is a function of our prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that's sort of right behind our forehead. And I think of it as the adulting part of our brain. So that's the part of the brain that helps us make good decisions and moderate our emotions and plan ahead and stay calm even when it's hard. And When we are triggered, which is something I talk a lot about in the book, and my super clinical definitions, very scientific here, Zibby, is Mm -hmm. my super clinical definition of being triggered is anything that makes you more likely to lose it with your kids, right? So when we are triggered, we're more likely to lose it with our kids. And when we are triggered, it essentially sends us into what I call the fight, flight, freeze, or freak out response which lights up our limbic system, which is sort of like the toddler part of our brain. You know, we're born with it. It's there to keep us alive. It puts us into survival mode. And when our limbic system is online, 
our prefrontal cortex goes offline. So when we are triggered by any number of a million things that can trigger us, whether it's chronic pain or a stressful interaction with a colleague at work, or we haven't slept in like a decade, or, you know, we have to pay a bill and we're not sure where we're going to find the money to pay that, or, you know, a difficult phone call from a family member, or, you know, you stubbed your toe, it doesn't matter. When we are triggered, our limbic system is more likely to come online, our prefrontal cortex goes offline and willpower, see ya. So we really want to set up these strategies and systems and habits that are going to make all that less likely to happen. Because when we focus on willpower, that's kind of a setup for failure in a lot of cases. By the way, I love how on Instagram, you're always like, I just got back from whatever situation full of triggers. Like you're always, Uh, uh, no, I love it. It's so awesome because you're just so open about it, right? Like trigger city, this is what's going on. So (laughs) it's like, yeah, some situations are just, they're, you know, they're minefields for your own sort of sanity. I mean, I, I think that's one of the things I was expecting the least as a parent was that my own sort of emotional regulation would have to be so fine tuned to deal with the constant inputs, really, of all these changing things, right? I mean, (laughs) it's a lot. And, you know, it's not that way for everyone. My husband, thank the Lord for the sanity of our home, is not this way. And what I've learned over the years is that I am what some researchers call a highly sensitive person. And this is sensitive not only in terms of, like, what's going on with this other person, like, kind of relationally in tune to people, but Loud noises are triggers for me. People touching me is a trigger for me. And anybody who spent five minutes with a toddler, nose and baby, they touch you all the time. And as much as you love that touch, it's a trigger. Strong smells are a trigger. I don't like most foods. Not a fan of flavor over here, which my poor foodie husband dies, I think, a little bit every time. I'm like, ooh, could we just have something really, like, don't don't spice the chicken. Don't I'm do the that. Same, I'm the same way. Just, oh, my God. It's, oh, my gosh. And uh, big emotions. I feel all the feelings. Somebody, I think, described it as having your nervous system kind of on the outside of your skin. I feel all the feelings all the time. And a lot of this exists in my body. So what I talk about in the book is that triggers make your button's big and bright and super sensitive and all lit up. And as anybody who's ever been in an elevator with a little kid knows, they see a button and they push it and then they push it again. And then, you know, we'll be standing on the sidewalk and the girls are like pushing the crosswalk button 27 times until I freak out and explode at them. But I've had to learn what I need to do to get my buttons dim again so they're not so pushable. And since for me, moving my body, like exercise every day has become basically a non-negotiable. And we're at the point now where the girls will look at me and be like, mommy, you seem kind of grumpy. Have you exercised today? And I kind of want to kick them in the teeth, but I don't, I don't. <laughs> them, And they're right. So yeah, Trigger Town USA over here. That's interesting. I also have like passed the test for highly sensitive person read the book. I uh, <laughs> I relate. Well, which is why we both love books so much because books true. are like not yes. triggers totally. for highly sensitive people. Totally. I kind of wish I had been a therapist as well. <laughs> but so tell me about, you You came up with these two acronyms in your book, FART, oh gosh. F- I'm sorry, FART and BURP, FART, feelings, automatic, reactive and toxic and BURP, which I forgot to write what that stood for. So tell me about these two and how we're supposed to use these to help ourselves. Uh, Yeah, look, first I want to explain why I chose these words. A big part of this book, I I didn't include all this profanity and potty talk in the book just for fun, although it was pretty fun and that helped. But I want to constantly remind parents that this parenting thing is far too serious to be taken seriously. Like we have to laugh at ourselves. We have to remember how ridiculous this is. I mean, I remember when my daughters were really little before they were potty trained and I was thinking to myself, you know, 
There are people on this planet, other than like doctors and nurses and healthcare workers, who don't regularly come in contact with other people's bodily fluids. They just don't. (laughs) And yet that is literally my life all the time. And I just, I think we have to be able to kind of laugh about it and, and stay silly and remember that it's all so crazy. And that's, that's the beauty of it. And it's also the challenge of it. So the acronym FART is one I use to kind of describe some of the features of a parental meltdown, let's say. Because look, if your kid is about to jump into like ongoing traffic and you reach out and grab them really hard and pull them onto the street and maybe snap at them, I wouldn't actually call that like an inappropriate explosion. Like you were responding appropriately to the moment, to the intensity of the moments, keeping your kids safe. So let's talk about what, you know, what are the features of the explosions that I'm worried about? Well, F is for feelings. Like obviously there are a lot of emotions involved when we explode in our kids. Now, the thing is we may or may not be aware that we're having those emotions. So there could be anger, guilt, powerlessness, shame, anxiety, frustration, confusion, all of these or some of these, and they may or may not have anything to do with our children, right? It could be something that happened at work or maybe another mom at pickup gave us some weird look or sent a snarky email and we're like, what the hell? And we're still kind of processing that, but there's emotion somewhere happening, right, for us. And one of the things that I think many of us think is that we can somehow control our feelings, that we can like choose to be happy or choose to feel better. And I just, I call BS on that. You can't control your feelings and no feeling is ever wrong. That's what we talk about in our family. The behaviors, right? Those may be problematic, but every feeling is okay. So F is for feelings. All right. A is for automatic. And this is just my way of pointing out that for most people, it's not like you walk in the door from work after a rough day and think, huh, today's a good day to lose my shit with my kids. I think (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and do that. Like we don't do that. It's, it's, you know, once we are triggered, once our fight, flight, freeze, freak out response kicks in, it's a pretty automatic behavior that happens and it can happen very quickly, which is why it really is a practice. It's something we have to work on over and over again to get better at catching ourselves and stopping that, that response, which is something I talk about later in the book. R is for reactive. And all I'm saying here is that something has triggered this, right? We are reacting to something. And many of you may say, actually, I'm reacting to my kids. My kids are annoying. They're being obnoxious. They're nagging me. They're having meltdowns in public. They're mouthing off. They're being uncooperative, whatever it is. And I say, yeah, that's probably true because that's what kids do. But the problem is if we say I'm only losing it because of my kid's poor behavior, then essentially what we're saying is until my kid behaves better, I'm going to keep losing it. And we're letting our children's behavior control our own. And what every parent says to their kids is, you can't control anybody else's behavior. You can only control your own. Well, that's true for us too. So we need to figure out what we're reacting to, what is triggering us so that we can start to figure out a better way to respond. Okay. So that's R. And then T is this idea that our parental explosions are toxic. And what I mean by that is that they are, it's a disproportionate response to what's happening and it's scary and confusing for the child. So if you grab your kid because they're about to run in the street, there's a pretty clear narrative about what happened there. Child was making an unsafe decision, parent reacted strongly to save their life, right? But let's say your kid spills the milk. And for you, when you were a kid, spilled milk caused a very strong reaction to your parents. They screamed, they yelled, they got really mad. And so you find yourself exploding over spilled milk. That's confusing and scary and pretty unpredictable and out of proportion. So your kid is going to be like, what is the story here? 
and they're not consciously thinking this because little kids don't, but they get very confused and they start to think that things are unpredictable and that small mistakes can cause major problems. So does that make sense for fart? Totally. That was a lot. No, it totally makes sense. And I love in particular what you just said about feelings and how there are no wrong feelings. And I feel like my kids, no matter how I try to mask them, if I'm upset about something, like it's like they they pick up on it right away. Like I try to be like, no, I'm going to smile and pretend that this bad thing is not going on. No, it's like they can see right through me. It's like, it's freaky. <laughs> Kids know us. They know us so well. And it really is an evolutionary thing for them. They literally depend on us for survival. And so the way they survive is they know you know, our every little thing. I mean, I raise an eyebrow the wrong way and my older daughter will be like, okay, what's wrong? And I'm like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. But they really do know. And their their fingers are perfectly, perfectly matched for our buttons, right? And yes. they find buttons we didn't even know we had. And they push, push, push. But yes. And the thing is, if we try to, I think we do our children a disservice when we try to hide our our, our experiences from them. Because number one, it's confusing and it feels distancing when you're like, I know something is wrong with you, but you're not telling me. and the message we're inadvertently sending our children is you always have to put on a happy face. And Zibby, I think for you and me and for our our mom listeners out there, this is a woman thing. And I'm not saying it's a woman, it's our fault thing. I'm saying it's a societal expectation of women that we always look happy, right? Smile more. Don't they always say that in the media to the politicians? You got to smile more. (laughs) I get very cranky about that. So I think it's okay. And obviously you want to say things to your children. Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. Backing up thought. I think the other reason why we do our kids a disservice when we try to hide feelings from them is not only are we teaching them that they should always be happy and if they're not happy, they should hide it or try to hide it, but kids are by nature very egocentric. They think the world revolves around them and they think that they are sort of the cause of everything. And it doesn't mean they're little psychopaths. It's just developmentally very typical, very normal. And so if a parent consistently seems unhappy, and the child doesn't have an accurate narrative to explain why, they'll go with, I did something wrong. Mom or dad is mad at me. I must have done something wrong. And then that creates anxiety for them. Then they get triggered. They may be more likely to lose it. It's very confusing. So with my kids, you know, you you want to frame your explanation in sort of a developmentally appropriate way. So you wouldn't say to like a four-year-old, I don't know, your grandmother was being a bitch to me and it really stressed me. <laughs> But you you might say, yeah, mommy's having a hard day. Like, you know, I was really busy today and I got had a lot of work and I'm pretty tired or whatever it may be. You don't want to like, you know, but now I'll say to my daughters, I had a really stressful day at work. I had, you know, a phone call that didn't go well or I don't know. I because they're older now and they can understand. And so when it's appropriate, I'll try to give them a little more insight into what's going on. I love that. Excellent. Wait, so then what's burp? Oh, we got to talk about burps. Zibi, I got to tell you, I'm super proud of this acronym because I think it just really worked. BURPS stands for Button Reduction Practices. So one of, you know, one of the ideas in the book is that when we are triggered, our buttons get big and bright and super pushable. And so BURPS are these basic practices. Guys, this is really not rocket science here that help those buttons get smaller, dimmer, less obvious, and less pushable so that when our kids come along with their little fingers out, there's nothing to poke, right? There's nothing to push. So I've got like 11 practices and and they're all pretty straightforward. It's things like getting enough sleep at night, 
stretching your body. So going for a walk, getting some exercise, doing some stretches, whatever it is, slowing down, right? We are much more triggered when we're rushing. And I have found that a lot of parents, and I don't know if this resonates with you, but I've gotten in the habit of rushing even when I don't really need to rush. Through transitions, I'll be like, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And then I'm like, oh, we actually have several more minutes. We're fine. Part of that is I hate being late. But Me too. I put all these false deadlines and then I make us early. And they're like, why did you rush us so much? But I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Like, but you've never been late. <laughs> I know. I just I need I feel like if you're bed. a person who hates being late, then yeah. You know. yeah. So slowing down is a big one. Having a lot of support. Support is a major burp, button reduction practice. When you have the people around you, whether it's your like best friends that you can text all the snarky, you know, videos to at the end of the night, or it's just the other parent that you're like, hey, I'm going to be five minutes late to school. Can you grab my kid and hang out? So anyways, I've got 11 of these different practices that can really help us kind of calm down, feel less stressed, less tense, less kind of triggered. And they're very helpful. Awesome. So what do you do if you do lose your shit with your kids? So first of all, the first and most important step is to get calm. You have got to calm yourself down first because until you are calm, if you try to re-engage with your children, you're going to end up exploding at them again. And here's what this looks like. You're still triggered and you decide that it's time to go re-engage with your kids. And so you go over to them and you sort of do this kind of half-assed apology, which is like, I'm really sorry I lost it with you, but I asked you 27 times not to throw that ball in the house. And then you end up breaking my favorite base. And that's actually not an apology. That's just sort of losing it again. And you're throwing the word sorry in there. And the other problem with trying to reconnect with your kids before you're calm is that if you go over there and you're expecting your child to apologize or you're expecting your child to say something nice to you and they don't do it, you're much more likely to explode at them because you're still triggered. So the first thing non-negotiable that you got to do after you blow up at your kids is you need to get calm. And two of my favorite strategies for that are getting curious about your own experience or having a lot of compassion for yourself because this parenting thing is really hard. And I, I give a lot of strategies for that because what I find is what most parents do after they blow up is they go into this like shame spiral and they feel terrible. They're like, I'm a terrible parent. I can't believe I lost it with my kids again. I'm never going to get this right. They're going to be a mess. I better start funding the therapy jar now. You know, I used to go in the kitchen and just search for chocolate. That's what I would do. Just feel awful, shove the chocolate in my face. It didn't really help. Tasted good, didn't help. And so what I really encourage parents to do now is to find a way to calm themselves down with a whole lot of compassion. Curiosity can help if you can say to yourself, what just happened? Am I tired? Am I hungry? Am I triggered? Is my child triggered? What do I need right now? You can actually get some actionable information about what's happening for you. And then you go apologize and reconnect to your child. And let me be very clear. I, I, I'm a big fan of apologizing. It's a thing in our family. And sometimes after the apology, there is another conversation about limit setting. I am sorry for my behavior. I shouldn't have behaved that way. You know, we, we love the I messages, taking responsibility for our actions. And the other side of this coin, kiddo, that we need to talk about is that, you know, I was very clear with my expectations about your cell phone use and you didn't follow them. So we're going to have that conversation now. So just because you apologize to a child doesn't mean you can't then, you know, set limits with them. Interesting. So you have this one tip from actor Jack Black where he says, never give a happy child ice cream which I just 
I just love that. That was so funny. Are there any tips like that that you've gleaned from other people or having all your experience in your practice that you've really internalized? Yes, I would say there are two. First of all, yeah, the happy child ice cream has become like a mantra for my husband and I because we'll see the girls. They're happy. They're playing, whether we're out of the house or in the house. And one of us will have this inclination to go over and play with them or offer them something or be like, let's do this. Let's increase their fun. And then the other parent will will look at my partner. He'll look at me and be like, ice cream, ice cream. Like that's our little code for leave them alone. Don't get involved. Do not make eye contact back slowly away. (laughs) You know, don't try to add more joy on if they're already happy because inevitably you will lead to a meltdown. So the other two tidbits of wisdom I would say that have become really powerful for me is the first one was actually from my grandmother who was a mother of seven and many, many grandkids. And I called her up many years ago, just a mess because I couldn't teach my girls how to swim. Every time I tried to bring them into the pool with me, they would cling to me like these terrified monkeys (laughs) and we weren't getting anywhere. And she said to me, you know, Carla, it's not your job to teach your kids everything. You can't teach your kids everything. Go, Go find someone else to teach them to swim. And that was like sort of this mind blowing moment because I thought as the mother, and the default parent, because I was only working part-time, so I was the one doing the drop-offs and the pickups and the whole nine yards, that it was literally my job to teach my kids everything. And I was like, when she said that, I really literally felt this burden lift from my shoulders, like, oh, it's not my job. And guess what? We paid for someone else to teach them how to swim, and it was amazing. And they were not nearly as clingy and anxious with this other person. So it was fantastic. And you also say in the book, it's not your job to make your kids happy either. Like that's also not your full responsibility. Look, we are not responsible for our children's emotions. We're not. We are responsible for, we're not responsible for anybody else's emotions. I mean, come on, we're barely responsible for our own, right? It's (laughs) not like we can control them. So look, we live in a culture of that glorifies happiness, right? We should all be happy. Happiness is the goal. And if we're not happy, it's because we're not working hard enough or doing the right things to be happy. And what I would say to parents is, again, I call baloney on that one because like really unhappy things happen in life, whether it's a scary diagnosis or a car accident or again, a bill we can't pay or a divorce or what, like, there are things that are really legitimately good reasons to be unhappy. And I think it's okay if we feel unhappy. And I want my kids to learn that. So, you know, of course, I want my children to be happy when they grow up. But more important than that, I want them to know that they can keep functioning and know what to do when they are unhappy or when they're having difficult emotions. So, yeah, it's not my job to keep my kids happy. It is my job to keep them safe. It is my job to teach them what they know. It's my job to be present with them as often as I can without losing it because too much and I lose it. But their emotional state is not my responsibility. I hope that makes sense. This is all just such amazing advice. Like, and advice I wish I had heard a few years ago. I have older, my older kids are 12 already. And obviously, as you can see, but I have my little daughter here who's six and then a almost five-year-old. If I had read your book, I feel like when my kids were just starting out, when I really felt I didn't have a handle on it, I would have been a far better parent, I think. But anyway, whatever, we'll We'll go from here. (laughs) But also just to be clear, it's so easy for me to say all these things on a podcast, right? My kids are away at school. They're not here. I just went for exercise. I'm thinking pretty clearly. I've got my trusty coffee. It's easy to say all these things. In the moment, they don't come naturally. You know, when I'm with my daughters and they're sad, my first inclination is I want to make the bad feelings go away. Of course, you know, and then I, I... I have to catch myself. I have to work hard and say, no, it's okay for my daughter to feel sad. 
My job here is to not make her happy. My job is to sit with her and let her know it's okay to cry. But that is not my gut mommy response, right? And so if there are listeners out there who are like really struggling with this, yeah, come over, we'll hang out because I'm struggling with it too. You know, it, it's, it's an, when I say it's a practice, I literally mean it's a thing we start out with being, being really bad at. And the more we practice it, we get better. But this is the work of a lifetime. And how did you yeah. fit in writing this book in the midst of everything else? When did you do it? Like, where do you like to write? Do you write at home? Did you go out to write? How did the process look for you? Oh, how, uh, it was a mess. It was a messy, messy process, as all my writing is. Look, I, I would love to say that I'm one of those writers who's like, I get my kids off to school. Then I make my coffee and I sit down at my desk and I write from nine and 10 to 12. And then I have a healthy salad for lunch. And <laughs> like that is no, you know, I fit it in where I could. And I, I try to write most days a week. I do write at my desk at home. I have a fantasy about having a little writing office somewhere, but it turns out nobody wants to give you that for free. Crazy. You need to pay Crazy. rent. Yeah. I'm rude. Really, R- really rude. rude. Yeah. But the thing that kept me writing is that I had an editor and deadlines. So that was the thing that really helped me keep this a priority because otherwise it's a little harder to stay focused because, you know, I have kids who get sick and I have, you know, random events at school that pop up in the middle of the day and they're like, we really need you here for this, you know, Native American fair that we're going to announce today. And can you bring, you know, 27 pounds of maize tomorrow, or <laughs> corn, whatever. I'm like, that is not a thing you can buy. And I don't know where to buy it. <laughs> no, hey, listeners who know where my kids go to school. I love the school. I love it. I love the teachers. But I just want to be realistic that it was, you know, it was a lot to fit in. I had to work hard to fit it in. And there were some days when I would say to my husband, like, you know, he'd walk in the door from work and I'd be like, I'm out. I got to go to the library somewhere and do work. So he was incredibly supportive. And the teachers at my daughter's school made it possible for me to write this book because they kept them all day (laughs) and taught them things. And while my kids were at school, I worked. I've always had a part-time job in addition to the writing. And so it's busy, but when you're doing what you love, it feels a little bit easier. And what advice would you have to aspiring authors who are trying to do this as well? I guess my first piece of advice is if you're in it for the money, find something else. It's very, very hard to make money writing, like real money that people can live on. But if you're a person like me who has always written and can't imagine doing anything else, and this is the only way to scratch that itch, then you got to do it. But you should probably have a job at the same time, unless you have a winning lottery ticket. And the other thing I would say is read a lot in the genre you want to write in. If you want to write a parenting book, you got to read the parenting books. You need to know what's out there. You need to know what's getting published. You need to know what the trends are. You know, if you look in the New York Times bestseller list for sort of how-to miscellaneous, there's a whole lot of books in there with swear words in the title. And you bet your tushy that that inspired me a little bit in this book, right? So you got to follow the trends. And the other thing I would say is like write with the voice that, is who you are and what feels most authentic. So my first two books did not have any profanity. They had a little bit of humor, but they were much more sort of straight-laced parenting books and they're good books. But this book, this is me. You read this book and then you come meet me and you know the kind of conversation we're going to have. And that doesn't work for everyone, right? So I was terrified to write this book because I, and I was talking to a friend and I was like, there are people who are going to hate it. And I expect her to be like, no, everybody's going to love your book. And instead she said, yeah, there are people who are going to hate this book. There are people who are not going to want to read this book. And those aren't your peeps. And that has to be okay. There are other parenting books for them. But there are people who have been looking for this book and haven't found it yet, and they need it. And as soon as my friend said to me, yes, there are people who are going to hate your book, and it's going to be okay, 
Like I was so liberated. So know that no matter what you write, somebody's not going to like it. Right. And that has to be okay. And the thing that will let you continue in that writing process is knowing that you are writing what's true for you. Something that is authentic and real that you really believe in. And that's what's going to keep you motivated, even knowing that it's a challenging process. And by the way, everyone I've mentioned your book to is like, I have to get that book right away. So I'm, <laughs> I, you. my peeps appear, appear to be your peeps. So, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show and for writing your great book and for all this advice. And honestly, just being so real and showing all of us, like, this is what it's like and it's okay and we don't have to be perfect. And I think the more that we all as a mom community sort of adopt that and feel better, the the better off we'll be and the better our kids will be. So. Oh, thank you. And thank you for all the work you do to support authors and writers and books and support moms who think they don't have time to read. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) All right. Well, it was great to meet you. And thank you so much. much. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks again to Kaiuchi for sponsoring this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.